Sorry, you guys. So, um, what I'd like to do is take a couple of weeks, um, weeks. I've got some articles. I just Googled some that have to do with justice and mercy. A, one particular essay by Lewis, and I, if you got my email, you saw. It's an essay. God, this is amazing. It's an essay on justice and mercy, which England would not publish. Let's see C.S. Lewis. He was one of the great apologists, Christian apologists of the 20th century. He had to go to Australia to get it published. So there's an essay, it's very short, and the book Abolition of Man, um, which is, I think, one of the best pieces of Christian apologetics in the 20th century. What I'd like to do is take a couple of weeks and read those. They're short. Um, I think they will deepen our... To me, they're a little bit like Boethius. They will give us a philosophic perspective. They'll, um, they'll raise questions. I think they'll deepen our sense of what's going on, and it'll it'll help deepen our sense of what we do with Aeschylus and Sophocles. But I just wanted to run that by. Are you guys okay if we can do that? It's called Abolition of Man. I've got um, there's two copies. Just I'll I'll give you a note. I'll send a note to you guys tonight. Um, the one that I've got is a, um, it's Simon and Schumer, New York. This is the book. It's C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. It's very short. Um, so, um, but any book you get will be good. It's Touchstone. It's a, it's a Touchstone publisher. Macmillan, it was a Macmillan, it was gone through several publications but this one's a touchstone and there's another one I haven't checked the pages and it they may be off a little bit doesn't matter it's just a very very short book this one is a Harper one it's a Harper one book they're very it's a very short book um, but what I'd like to do is um, take a break because my sense is that it would help us get a philosophic grounding um, because I just think the, the the question that we're dealing with is can get so personal and it can take us everywhere and I, I, my hope is that this will help ground us and um, deepen whatever we do when we go back to Aeschylus and Sophocles, okay? So next week I'd like, I'll send you these online pieces that I picked up. I'll, I'll, I'll drop them in our box. Um, I'll make a new folder called um, justice and mercy. I'll put it in our box. Go into that box. Take a look at the pieces. Read them at your leisure. The what I'd like to start with next week is C.S. Lewis's work on. I, I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. I think it's called the humanitarian view of justice and mercy. Um, he's he's taking he's taking exception to this modern view, humanitarian view that the modern world is far more compassionate, far more, um, it's better than the traditional view of justice and mercy. And he's taking issue with that. Um, so at C.S. Lewis, it's a, good, it's a good article, and we'll, um, we'll, we'll start with that and the first chapter of um, Abolition of Man. Are you guys okay with that? I know that's a change, but I, I think you'll find the essays are short, 
they're they're not long. They're very short. They're very readable. It's C.S. Lewis, so the language is very simple. Um, but he's but he's dealing with um, tough things. Has anybody here online? Have any of you guys read Abolition of Man? Are any of you aware of it? You'll enjoy it. it I, in some ways, it'll knock your socks off. Um, the 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 sad thing for me is that. Everybody knows the Narnia. Everybody, or most people, know mere Christianity or Problem of Pain or some of the other. But the two greatest works in my mind of C.S. Lewis are um, Two We Have Faces, which I, he acknowledged it. I, I just think it goes far beyond anything else he did in fiction. And I think Abolition of Man is probably one of the finest pieces of apologetics he did in his life. Um, so it's a good, it's a good work. Okay. So next week, um, tomorrow, I will send you those either tomorrow, tomorrow early, tomorrow late, or at the latest Wednesday. But I'll get those essays to you, and if you guys will pick up a copy, I, I'll write a note giving you the publisher so you don't have any questions about that. And um, order it, go buy it. Um, you shouldn't have any trouble getting it. And it's very short. It's very easy to read. Why don't you unmute them and let them comment? Hmm? Why don't you unmute them? Oh, they can, Doc. Okay, any questions or comments on any of this? Do you, are you going to send this by email or put it in the folder? or? I'll, I'll, I'll create a folder, so I'll, I'll drop it in our blog in the okay. St. Francis. Under our blog, I'll put in a um, Justice and Mercy folder, and in that folder, I'll include these pieces. And remember, they're 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 um, they're not required. You know, you don't have to read these um, at your leisure. the The one that I would like you to read is the one by C.S. Lewis. There will be others, but the "Till We Have Faces" is what we will use for discussion here in our group. That will be our book. So you're going to have to read. Well, I mean, try to read that book. Um, it's short, so. Um, uh, are you are you saying there's one book which is abolition of man and the other one is an article yes yes just read well I'll put a number of articles Marcy but I'll single out one of them it's by Lewis those are you know you don't have to read them they're just there the one by like Lewis the one by Lewis I think is essential because it goes it goes directly to this problem but the focus of our discussions will be that one article. I'll I'll indicate it, and to have or I mean, uh, abolition of man. Okay. That'll be our focus. Did you, did you say earlier that in abolition of man you wanted us to read the first chapter? We'll we'll start with that, Carl. We'll start with that one article by Lewis and the first chapter. So we'll spend a couple of weeks on Lewis. You're, when you when you sit down to read C.S. Lewis, uh oh. When you sit down to read C.S. I don't know what happened. What what somebody did some sharing thing or something again. I don't know what just happened. Marcy, Marcy, was that you again? <laughs> um, how do we do, how do I get rid of this? I don't know what to do. Um, what was I going to say? Um, could any, if any of you did a sharing thing, could you be sure to turn it off? Because something just happened here. I don't know what to do.
Um, somebody, somebody's doing a sharing thing. Who's doing this? Who, who's somebody's? Who's doing mini golf? I got rid of it by just closing it. It's got a little X up in the upper right-hand corner. What and I just X'd out of it. What do FYI. I? But yeah, somebody I can see it down here. Somebody's sharing their their screen again. How, what 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 Carl? I mean, can Fred? Can you tell them what to do to stop doing? Well, the screen that popped up in in front of the screen that we oh there we are. Happened. There we are. There's a little X up in the upper right hand corner, and I just closed it. Yeah. Somebody. How do you know if it's you? Like, Pardon? I, how do you know if it's you doing X? It's not happening under my hands. Screen. Just don't share. I, I don't know the end. Just don't share. Let's keep it simple. And and if you guys can just stay on audio visual and leave everything alone, so we'll be okay. Um, let's 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 start. Let's start. Let's start. Um, I've muted you all, so let's start. I'm going to say a prayer, and then I want to look at our poem, and then I'd like to take up these two questions that we're going to do. Um, let's, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of yourself to us this morning, the gift of our life from you. We would not be here but for you. Um, I'm going to speak personally for a second. Um, the last couple of weeks of discussions, I think, have touched a nerd for all of us, I think. I hope I'm not misreading here. We carry our sins with us, all of us. Um, we go to church during the week and the weekends, um, um, looking to you to um, help us become better at loving. <coughs> to grow into the wholeness that you call us to. Our call, every one of us, is to holiness, to be whole, to, um, to get past whatever those sins are in every one of us that hold us back. Pride, arrogance, envy, all of them. Think we have all the answers, we don't. We shouldn't question the ultimate truths, the Trinity, the Incarnation. There shouldn't be questions for us. But all these other questions having to do with justice or mercy or whether we're loving as we should or not, they go to wounds. All of us carry them. Forgive us our sins in the past, please. We all carry them. The literature is convicting. We read this literature, we enter a world like our own, and we find ourselves in what these people are doing. Oriole, Captain Veer, Billy, um, Alexei. Um, Zosimov, Achilles, Aeneas, all of them, um, Helena. Um, we find ourselves in actual concrete situations where people have to make decisions to try to be just and to learn to serve. Strengthen us in our efforts to, um, to grow in obedience. I'm saying that very seriously. Our original sin against you was disobedience. One of the easiest things in our world is to be disobedient, to not do your will, to do what we think is right. And very often what we think in, is right isn't always in accord with your will. Strengthen us in our ability to see your will for us, to have the courage, the humility to do it, 
particularly where it's painful. Um, our literature has given us examples of that. Help us to find a strength in it. I ask for a grace of um, openness that we learn to give ourselves to what's there, not turn them to make them fit us, whatever we want, to learn to see what's there, to do your will, um, to die and your cross, knowing, trusting that a new life will come to us and particularly those we love, even where it's painful. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, quick um, Auden's poem. Um, if all of you could pull it out, I just want to recall a couple of things to you before we go on to the, the known section. Um, I think a lot of you have, have verbally expressed your pleasure in this poem. Um, I think it was Tracy. I bless her soul. I don't know where she's gone. Tracy, you come back here. Where'd you go? Tracy, are you here? Um, um, anyway, the, um, there's a, a sense in which most of us are convicted in this poem because he's describing what goes on in our daily life on, on Good Friday. It's the day in which Christ will be crucified. He structured the poem, you know, according to the canonical hours. And this is really interesting. I want everybody to pay close attention here. There's a sense in which the poem assumes um, being on time. I, I know that's not going to be a big matter for everybody, but the poem assumes it. When the monks met for prayers, they had to be punctual. They had to be on time because prayers are going to be said. So the assumption was whatever you were doing, it did not matter. At that hour, you went to prayers because in that moment, you step outside of time to be with Christ. So gardening, cooking, ironing, doing a job, earning money, all of that stuff stopped. The poem is structured around hours and being punctual, being there to say the prayer. So implied in the poem is stopping what you're doing and being with God. Stop letting the world take over, control, give us excuses. It's a time for prayer. And we saw that in the, in the prime, it begins with the person becoming conscious of himself and in a way that um, took him back to Adam, resembled an, 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 a, a sort of endemic consciousness and innocence. In the terse, in the third hour of the day, usually nine, we get a description of people going off to work. Um, the hangman sets off. Remember, after petting his dog, he was always kind. The ironies here are biting. They're, they're so subtle. The hangman goes off. He does not know yet who will be provided. That language is telling. Uh, it's exactly the language of the Old Testament when somebody was going to provide a sacrifice at the altar, a lamb, sheep. The judge goes off, he does not know by what sentence he will apply on earth the law that rules the stars. He's got this sense of himself as a judge that he's acting according to this grand scheme of things. You know, that he's got this great thing to do. Um, 
So everybody sets off for their job and it ends because everybody would like to think that they could go through this day so that it would just be like just every other day. The irony is, of course, is that this is Good Friday. This is the day in which we reenact um, the, the um, crucifixion of Christ. And I'm, I'd like to just recall for a moment, you, you, we've done this together, the um, Eliot um, murder in the cathedral. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day. The priest asking, what day is it, what day is it? Um, are, are, this is so amazing. Are we in time? Because for a Christian, every day involves an intersection of the timeless with our world. That was Boethius, the still point of the center, remember? Are we on the margin, whirling around with the world? World, the, the, the irony of that word, world means world, our world. But world means twisting, turning. Are we on the periphery of that, that circle in which things are wildly taking us up, we can't do enough because the world has all these demands on us. Or are we at that still point? Are we identifying ourselves with God, distancing ourselves enough so that we can have some sense of what God's doing um, when the world doesn't see it? So we've got all these activities going on and everybody wanting to treat this day like it's every other except it's Good Friday. Nochthonian mutters of unrest but no other miracle knows that by sundown we shall have had a good Friday. Get to the end of the day and we want to say, this has been a good day. Um, but there's that irony. In the sext, in the sixth hour, we've got those three sections, remember, in the first one, it's describing all these people who have a, surf, a sense of purpose in their life. They do all these great things. They accomplish all these great things. And they're essential because without it, we would live a primitive existence. We'd be no different, we'd be feral, like the animals in a jungle. In the second section, he talked about all these people have authority to get these things done. A colonel, a surgeon, doesn't matter, whatever, anybody telling somebody what to do. In the third section, and here's where I want to pick up just as a transition to the section we're about to go to. In the third section, he kept dealing with this sense of a crowd. So in the, in the terse, or I'm sorry, in the sext, the sixth hour, he's dealing with these three different um, groups of people, those who, are, who have a calling, those in authority, and the crowd. And I just want to take a second with that before we start the knowns, the ninth hour. Remember, he's describing what all these people do. The crowd stands perfectly still, the crowd does not see what everybody else sees. It's never distracted by a dog, a fish. The crowd sees only one thing, an epiphany of that which does whatever is done. Now it's really clear, he says, individuals go about doing whatever they do. But he distinguishes the crowd from these individuals because the crowd is taken by that epiphany of that which does whatever is done. Okay? Um, whatever God a person believes in, whatever way he believes, no two are exactly alike, as one of the crowd he believes, and only believes in that in which there's only one way of believing. That's one of the distinguishing marks of the crowd. 
Few people accept each other, and most will never do anything properly. But the crowd rejects no one. Joining the crowd is the only thing all men can do. So he's distinguishing, once again, between everybody else, all men, and the crowd. And it's only in the crowd um, that it's that there's only one thing to do. It's to join the crowd. Only because of that can we say all men are brothers. So it's only because we identify with the crowd that we can call each other brothers. So on the one hand, it seems this thing is good. It's so good that it's the only way we call each other brother, because otherwise we're all individuals, we're scattered, we have no identity with each other. Only because of that we can say all men are brothers, superior because of that to the social exoskeletons, this projecting of our outside. When have they ever ignored their queens for one second, stopped work on their provincial cities to worship the prince of this world like us at this noon on this hill on the occasion of this dying? Now before we go to the knowns, I'd like to take a second. What is this crowd? What's its importance here? Why is he making so much of it? This is the image that's the transition into the third hour. And the third hour, traditionally, you know, is the hour in which Christ was crucified. So in the first, in the opening, remember, it talked about waking up in the morning. Um, It went from there to nine o'clock. I think that's the hour in which Christ was presented to Pilate. So the so the there's canonical hours, the hours of the prayer, but interestingly, the hours also line up with um, um, the last day. Christ was taken before Pilate. He goes through that judgment, the scourging, in the third in the third hour, or in the knowns, the ninth sorry, the ninth hour, usually three o'clock. Traditionally, that was the hour in which Christ was crucified. So we're going to get to that. But the transition here is this crowd. What's Auden showing us in this crowd? Why is it important? The crowd sees only one thing, an epiphany of that which does whatever is done. The crowd rejects no one. Joining the crowd is the only thing all men can do. Only because of that can we say all men are brothers. Um, when have when have they ever ignored their queens for one second, stopped work on their provincial cities? You remember the city is the governed image of this, and we we we've talked about that forever. The city's double-edged; it represents everything great in us, and it also represents our rejection of God, our efforts to live on our own. So the city's always double-edged. Um, for one second, stop their work in the provincial cities to worship the prince of this world like us at this noon on this hill in the occasion of this dying. What is this crowd? Anybody? Before we go on? Is it the crowd of um, Jews and Romans crucifying Christ? I don't want to answer that. Jolie, why? Why do you say that? I mean, put it in terms of the line. You know, the crowd sees only one thing which does whatever is done. 
identify, define the crowd, not in terms of their race or what, what is it that gives them their identity, that makes them distinct from everybody else. Which, the epiphany of that which does whatever is done. What does that say about a people? The crowd sees only one thing, an epiphany of that which does whatever is done. That's a strange line. It's like crowd hysteria. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that, Linda? Barabbas, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. They were probably thinking of Jesus, but hey, it yeah. started, and it could be anything that's right. done. Right. I mean, I think of crowd hysteria at a football game. Yeah. Basketball game, but yeah. I wasn't thinking scripturally at the moment. And yeah. And it is critical. That line, which does whatever is done, conveys a sense that it's a condition which allows everybody not to take responsibility for themselves. It's done. It's like it's prescripted or determined. But it, because it's a crowd, it makes it possible for everybody to step into it, do it, without, in a sense, being absolved of any responsibility for what goes on. So. It's that condition, um, as one of the crowd he believes and only believes in that which there is only one way of believing. There's only one way to believe once you enter. Few people accept each other and most will never do it properly. That's as individuals. But once you join a crowd, but the crowd rejects no one, let's all be together, call each other brothers. Only because of that we can say all men are brothers. So there's something good because it's in the crowd that we can find a unity, get outside of our individual selves, but it's also in that crowd that it becomes easier for us not to do something, not to take responsibility. Because the crowd is responsible. It's, yeah, it, it's as if there's thing that's done and the crowd becomes, the crowd becomes one of it. Um, the crowd did it, not me. I'm not individually yeah, responsible. Yeah, yeah. So when when um, Pilate, you know, what to do? The crowd, the crowd's response: crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So there's this sense of the city taking on an identity of being brothers to one another. It's the only place in which people can find identity with each other. All those are positive things as they're presented in a poem, but there's also this, this other sign. And it's, it's Auden's ability to play off these things in a paradoxical way that makes his irony so subtle. Um, you know, to worship the prince of this world like us, I, I, I mean, you, you can say the prince of the world is Satan, I, th I think that's the most obvious, but I think it's hard to hear those without thinking of Christ, you know, the Prince. He, he just, he's presenting a, a condition that does not allow for black-white judgments. It's, it's the condition of the world. Remember the, the scapegoating mechanism we've talked about, that we're all involved in doing these very important things without seeing that something of what we're doing is is going to create a scapegoat. Somebody 
who will take the burden off of us. Um, because the burden on us, few people want to take that burden on. To do that is to be, to die with Christ. So let me, any, I'll, I'll go on to knowns unless anybody has any other comments on um, the text. Uh, we're getting the hours right. Yeah, the text. Any other thoughts? I'm thinking of a little book we read to the grandbaby called uh, Grasshopper. And uh, he happened upon a bunch of beetles and they were uh, having a pep rally for people, for lovers of the morning. Whoever likes morning. And Grasshopper says, I like morning. But he says, I also like the afternoon and evening. And the whole pep rally stopped. And all the beetles look at him and go, you like afternoon? Stupid. You can't be part of our group. You like evening? No way. Go away. You know, and they wouldn't let him be part of their group because he liked morning and afternoon and evening. Yeah. And it just, that's what I thought of. <laughs> and I thought, that's mob mentality for you. <laughs> okay. Let's, um, I want to do the knowns. This is the hour at which traditionally Christ was thought to have been crucified. So we've gone through the day, waking up to this Adamic, Adam-like consciousness. Um, we enter the day in which everybody gets busy and they do their things, they exercise their authority. But the underlying motive that we've been talking about is this scapegoat, this victim. That all the while, the judges, the hangmen, somebody's going to pay for it that the tendency of human beings, of all human beings, all of us, all of us, is to scapegoat, to blame somebody, to put a blame somewhere before we take on the curse of the cross ourselves. I don't know how else to put it. So it's been there implied. He gets, um, he, he hints at it more explicitly a little bit in some of the passages, but now we're gonna get it head on because this is the hour. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. This is the time Christ died. And you know from the poem that everything he's been describing is of a city going on about its work as if nothing different is going on. It's an ordinary day. They want every, they, everybody wants everything to go well. But something exciting happened. Let me find a lucky coin on the sidewalk. Let me hear a new funny story. At this hour, we might be anyone. It is only our victim who's without a wish, who knows already that's what we can never forgive. If he knows the answers, then why are we here? Why is there even dust? He knows already that in fact our prayers are heard, Christ heard them, that not one of us will slip up, that the machinery of our world will function without a hitch, that today for once there will be no squabbling on Mount Olympus, no Chthonian mutters, but no other miracle knows that by sundown we shall have had a good Friday. If we go through the day wishing that it was like any other day um, without seeing, then we're partly missing because this was Good Friday. So in one sense, it's like Eliot's um, murder in the cathedral. This is so important. What, what Auden is doing through the structure of the poem, the canonical hours, we're going through the hours of day, prayers. He's also going through history, that all these things are happening. But one thing happened in history that forever changed history. 
Christ gave an answer to all historical problems, no matter what they are, no matter the judge, a hangman, the clerk, it doesn't matter. What he did was introduce the timeless into time and made sense of all of history, even if people don't want to acknowledge that. So inserted into this historical time was this one event. It's a little bit like the opening remember of T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, time present, time past, or all present in time future, time future. If all time is eternally present, all time, all time is unredeemable. It's only when the timeless comes into time that we can make any sense of history. So the answer is already here. Who sees it, who can stand at that still point, who who wants to dissociate from the world to stand there? Another question. Okay. So the non-section is long. I think there's, if I remember, seven sections. I'm just going to read three of them and with little comment and stop, because it's a long it's a long section. And we'll finish the knowns next week when we when we pick up again. Okay. So this is three o'clock midday. It's the hour at which Christ was crucified on Good Friday. It's the time at which, um, remember poem, or Eliot's murder. This day, this day, it is the day, it is the day. Are we in time? Are we living in time aware that our sense of time was changed by what Christ did? Are we still just caught up on the edge of that circle, whirling as if it never happened? Knowns, the ninth hour. What we know to be not possible Though time after time foretold by wild hermits, by shaman and sibyl gibbering in their trances, or revealed to a child in some chance rhyme like will and kill. It's, it's so telling that he chose those two words. A child's not going to know. And yet, those two words, will and kill, absolutely do define our place in it, whether we give our will the place we make for killing God. Like will and kill come to pass before we realize it. So something not possible, what we know to be not possible, comes to pass before we realize it. We are surprised at the ease and speed of our deed and uneasy. It is barely three, mid-afternoon, yet the blood of our sacrifice is already dry on the grass. It's another day. Nothing happened. We are not prepared for silence so sudden and so soon. The day is too hot, too bright, too still, too ever. Just repeats itself. The dead remains to nothing. Christ's gone. What shall we do till nightfall? <laughs> Go out and have drinks. Do something to keep busy so we don't have to think about what just happened. The wind has dropped and we have lost our public, the faceless many, the crowd, the faceless many who always collect when any world is, is to be wrecked, blown up. What happens when there's a catastrophe? You know, a, um, a storm coming in the Gulf, a, um, what do you call it, Doc? Um, when a, not the, the blizzards, but the, in the Gulf. Hurricanes? Hurricanes, when the hurricanes come, you know, that... Some, an earthquake. When some catastrophe comes, everybody panically gathers. 
Um, the wind has dropped and we have lost our public. The faceless many who always collect when any world is to be wrecked, blown up, burned down, cracked open, felled, sawed in two, hacked through, torn apart, have all melted away. Not one of these who in the shade of walls and trees lie sprawled now, calmly sleeping, harmless as sheep, can remember why he shouted or what about so loudly in the sunshine this morning. Can they remember they said, crucify him, crucify him. Can they identify with those words? They don't remember anything. It was a monster with a red eye, a crowd that saw him die, not I. The hangman has gone to wash the soldiers to eat. We are left alone with our fear. The Madonna with the green woodpecker, the Madonna of the fig tree, the Madonna beside the yellow dam. It's just monotonous repetition. The Madonna is Christ's mother who suffered it. Turn their kind faces from us and our projects under construction. Look only in one direction. Fix their gaze on our completed work. Pile driver, concrete mixer, crane, and pickaxe wait to be used again. But how can we repeat this? Something just happened that will never happen again. Everybody's going back to work, doing what they did. Outliving our act, we killed him. We stand where we are, as disregarded as some discarded artifact of our own. It's like we've turned ourselves into things, like torn gloves, rusted petals. Abandoned branch lines, worn lopsided grindstones buried in nettles. This mutilated flesh, our victim, explains too nakedly too well the spell of the asparagus garden, the aim of our chalk-pit game, stamps, bird's eggs, are not the same behind the wonder of towpaths and sunken lanes, behind the rapture on the spiral stair. We shall always now be aware of the deed into which they lead under the mock chase, the mock capture, the racing and tussling and splashing, the panting and the laughter, be listening for the cry and stillness to follow after. Wherever the sun shines, brooks run, books are written, there will also be this death. Everybody will get on. They will go back um, behind the rapture and the spiral scare. We shall always now be aware of the deed into which they led us, the mock chase, the mock capture, you know, the, everything that happened with Christ. We go back to work, we pursue things um, and go on, but still we're left with this sense of death. It haunts us. Um, I, if, you, if, if some of you will just remember when we did T.S. Eliot's The Journey of the Magi, remember it's Eliot's um, describing a Journey of the Magi, but in contemporary terms, and he said, um, Oh, God. Sorry, you guys. Um, uh, what did I do with it? Oh, here. The journey, the man. Sorry. Um, remember, he describes the magi, the, the, the sherbet ice cream, the dancing girls, the gambling on the way. Um, this. Were we led all this way for birth or death? They came to see this child born. Was it for a birth or death? Because they came thinking it was the birth of a king. There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death. 
but it thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. There's, um, it's amazing to watch these two poets contemporary who are in very different ways experiencing some of the same things in this world that it's a post-Christian world, it's, it's turned away from Christ, um, and yet at the heart of it you can't escape him. He's always there, um, always convicting, always drawing, always calling, always offering. Okay, let me stop. Um, we'll finish um, the knowns next week. Any, any comments on this section? We've got three more sections to do. Um, but any comments on the section we just read? Tough stuff. Tough stuff. Tough stuff. <coughs> Genie. Any... I'm used to seeing Jeannie and Carl. Instead of Jeannie and Carl, it's got live, colon, dot, C-I-D, dot, 10-E-E, 1-2-3-6-1-6-8-9-9-1-5-3. What is that? Instead of Carl and Jeannie, we've got... I just used... The link that you had, Bob, and that's what came up. You can't see it. <laughs> well, speaking personally, I prefer Jeannie and Carl. <laughs> well, 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 I, I see Jean, I see Carl and, and I see Jeannie and Carl on mine. Really? Mm -hmm. yeah, funny. On my screen, so. Cyberspace is just a mystery. What do you do, God? No, any comments on this poem? It's... Tough poem. Tough poem. Okay. Um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to read two of the questions that were on the list that um, Fred and Francis started us with. I'd like to go to two of them tonight. But before we do, any, I think the last couple of weeks on justice and mercy were tough weeks. I mean, they're very tough questions. Um, what I'd like to do is turn it over to Fred and Francis since they started all this stuff. Um, Francis, don't you go away. You come back here. <laughs> you come back here. I want, I, I want to know if any, I'm going to turn it over to you, Fred and Francis. Do you, any last thoughts about justice and mercy that you want to offer to, as a, tentative or provisional wind-up for this section? Well, I, I guess what, I'll, I'll try to make this really brief and then I'll turn it over to my fellow classmates, but I, I guess what we were trying to, to, to get our arms around and was really interested in everybody else's input is as we've gone through all of these great works and the poems and the short stories, there were some, some what we thought were kind of themes that were common among those readings, and that's what we tried to capture 
in in the the, the notes that we made. And for me, probably the most difficult of all is Justice and Murphy Mercy because it seems to require the ability to to deal with all of the others as well. So, you know, the I, I won't use the balance because balance kind of tends to say 50-50. And to me, it's a composition because every case is different and every, you know, the amount of justice and mercy that's the best response is different for every single one, which yeah. Yeah. I think is part of what makes it difficult. And in order to do that well, you kind of have to have done that self-reflective analysis that we saw until we have faces, because if you don't really understand who you are, then how do you, how can you hope to, to figure out what that right composition is for any given circumstance? And if you don't have a, a real appreciation for the difference between God's law and natural law and man's law. I mean, all of those come into play when you're trying to find that right composition for justice and mercy um, in any given sense. And one of the questions that we had was, well, does the Catholic faith really help us? Does it make us better suited to be able to do that than, than anyone else? And I think to some extent the sacraments you know, maybe do do that, but you have to be a practicing Catholic. I mean, if you're just a Catholic or, you know, in a different, in a different space, then it becomes different. And, you know, I, I, I'm I'm going to avoid being political here, but this whole concept of practical, practicing Catholic is coming up all the time these days. And I think if you if you're really going to be able to utilize any advantage that comes from the Catholic faith, you have to be a practicing Catholic. But to me, that the the, the 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 question around justice and mercy is one we see literally every day now yep. in so many different aspects of what's going yeah. on, and it's it's you know it's maybe one of the most difficult things that that any of us would you know would attempt to do, and that's why we were just really you know, interested in getting everybody's take on, you know, their their thoughts regarding that because it seems to be, you know, a prevalent challenge through pretty much all of the works that we that we read in one sense or another. Yeah. Um, but I I'm gonna I've got a comeback question for a second, but um, Francis, can you slip over so we can see you next to your husband? Because you, you get back here. You come back here. <laughs> you come back here. No, you big coward Come back. <laughs> Come on, you. God, you're the one responsible for this guy's conversion. You should be in there. Come on. <laughs> okay. Okay. What's yeah, your... I'm responsible. Okay. He was a good... Wow, well, he was a Baptist before. <laughs> Francis, what's your... You just if, if you had to think about three works, let's just say, which three works speak to this issue of justice and mercy that immediately come to your mind? Just name three and why. Um, until you have faces. Um, Merchant of Venice. Don't, don't go to that guy. Oh, you no, Ignore was, him. No, we, we were. We had talked we about that. On this. Yeah. 
the third one. Hmm. Ah. Well, uh, Old Man in the Sea was a questionable one. Well, no, no. Billy Budd was one that I had. My phone is ringing. Billy Budd was one that the justice and the mercy. Let me go turn off she's, the phone. She's got to grab the phone. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Fred, let me let me put it back to you. If you had to if you had to think of three, name three and and um, why would you name them and what did they show you about the relationship between justice and mercy? Those, particularly those, whatever three you choose. Why those well, three? You know, we, I, I chose them and I don't know if anybody's actually looked at this stuff that we, that we put out, but um, I think those, those that we, we saw there, you know, were, were all examples. Um, some of the ones that are, are probably more obvious than others, the Merchant of Venice, clearly, and, and Portia being able to, to find that balance, you know, that composition yeah. that no one else seemed to be able to find and, and why. Um, I, I think I think Billy Budd kind of brought out what, what, what I got out of that was, um, I thought it was an excellent presentation on how hard it really is to find the right composition because, you know, and I, I, I kind of went out into the literature and, and sort of Googled it just because I was curious. And there are as many people who think that uh, the captain made the right decision as there are people who made that, that thinks the captain didn't make right. the right decision. Right, right. In all, in all honesty, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll go out on a limb here and, and I, I think the, you know, the author's presentation, trying not to get out of the book, if you will, uh, I think the captain made the right decision. And I'm probably going to take a lot of abuse over that. Not, not for me. I, I mean, I couldn't agree I, more. To me, it was a, it was a fantastic example yep. of, you know, probably done better than anyone else I've ever read of how difficult yep. to figure out what that right composition is and act um, on it yeah and you know the, but in terms of the third i mean there's so many of them just to pick one you know maybe not so obvious um a winter's tale it, it, it's wow it's there um you know it's just in it's in, in a lot of uh chaucer's work stop if there. you can don't go back go back because we can go on and on and go to back to winter's tale why that can you get specific about why you chose that and relate it to justice and mercy? Because I was well, shaking, I, I just couldn't agree with you more. But can you flesh that out? Um, I I think if you just if you just look particularly at the at the women in that work, uh, they seem to have a much better appreciation of what that composition should be than the men do. Um, maybe it's a Maybe it's a little more subtle than some of the other works that we've talked about, but to me, again, it's there's such a difference between the clarity that the, the the women have in that work and their ability to do that, and the men just seem to be totally oblivious for the most part. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So I I just picked that one because maybe it's not one that 
one would necessarily dial up off the cuff and, and, and say that. But th that's just my perspective. And I'd, I'd love to hear what, you know, everyone else thinks on, on that in that regard. But uh, at least from the standpoint of view of the work that Francis and I did, you can pull so many of the other pieces that we felt like were consistent through, you know, we talk about the crowd, for example. To me, the town is a classic example <laughs> of the crowd mentality. Wow, wow, wow. wow. You know, for example. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. And, yeah. and I agree with, you know, with, with Marcy and the others earlier. To me, the crowd is the problem. As you're trying, and, and the crowd is the problem today. It's so much easier to, to jump on the bandwagon with the crowd and take a position than it is to step back and use your own mind, your own heart, go out and do your own research and and try to come up with what you think as a practicing Catholic is the right answer. Yeah. Let me, if I can, before I go to everybody else, let me just, I want to just briefly respond to Fred's comment because I, I happen to think Winter's Tale is, is I think, the Shakespeare's greatest work. Um, by the way, Susanna and I have been doing Fellowship of the Ring. I, I have not wanted to read. I've, we've watched the movies. We're, we're just, I can't tell you the depth of my respect for what Tolkien is doing. But I think to end this class, to find, <laughs> um, I, I think I, I really want to get to the Fellowship because everything that we've read is embodied in that work. But So I've had winners, all of them, anybody. But let me go to Winterstale just for a second. For those of you who, you know, for, for whom it's not immediately on your mind. Remember that Leontes accused his wife as a matter of justice. I, I want to try to make this as clear as I can because Fred picked that work out. I don't want to leave it and just gloss it because I think it's too profound. He was like Othello. I've said this before when we went in. He did the Othello thing, but he didn't have the prompting of Iago. So Othello's sin, I think from Shakespeare's perspective, is, is far less than Leontes. Um, Othello was tempted on. Leontes, it's so clear in his treatment of those opening um, scenes that that comes from with Leontes himself when he talks about imagining this stuff. But he accuses his wife as adultery. That's been, the sexual problems have been with us for the Iliad. At the center of the Trojan War is um, um, Helen's infidelity to Menelaus. She and Paris take off, and so right at the beginning, this war at the center of the... He, Leontes accuses his wife of, of adultery. She's pregnant. He's convinced. He puts her in the tower as an act of justice. He's convinced he's being just. Um, things start falling apart. Um, remember, the baby's born. Paulina brings the baby to him, and he said, get that witch out of her. Here and he tells Antigonus, who is Paulina's husband, to take him out and kill her, drop her off somewhere. He sends an embassy to the oracle to uh, um, validate what he believes is the right decision. The embassy comes back and says, Leontes a tyrant, he's this, he's that, he will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. The, the, the first response of, on Leontes' part is to deny the oracle. He's so convinced that he's right that what he's doing is just. Immediately after he says that, because he won't listen to the oracle, he gets the news that his son died. In that moment, he collapsed. I mean, it's a near collapse. He said, the God, Apollo's angry. 
And then Paulina comes out with the news that Hermione has died. So an act of justice. He believed he was doing just. He was not. He was wrong. Absolutely wrong. The gods perform an act of justice. They take his son. When Hermione loses the, or learns that the son is gone, she, what Paulina says is she's dead. We learn later that she wasn't. But they're withdrawn. The two women withdraw. So what's at issue in this book is, um, to use Fred's language, um, justice in Leonte's mind, and whether or not that justice conformed to natural justice, whether in fact Hermione was guilty or not. She wasn't. We know she, she wasn't. In fact, Leontes was so convinced that he wanted, he asked Camilla to kill Polixenes because he was convinced that Polixenes was unjust. So he's even going to commit murder. So we're watching a tyrant king act on the basis of what he wants to make justice in his head. All this violence is going to come out. The gods finally respond. It's an act of justice, retributive justice. He's going to pay for it. He loses his son. He thinks he loses his wife. We go from Sicily to <coughs> Bohemia, and there we watch Perda to grow up. And the, she and Polixene, or uh, Florizo become engaged, and then the, the father again becoming outraged at the injustice of his son because the son didn't tell him about it. Camilla says, let's flee. They go back to Sicily. They're reconciled. But here's the point I want to... Paulina's the one. She's lost her husband. The son's dead. There's, there's no heir. The, the city is dying under a tyrant king. But Shakespeare's looking at um, Henry VIII with all the wives to have an heir. Um, Paulina says, you cannot do anything. She sets down a law. You cannot do anything without my will. You cannot marry until you have my will. Because he's done all this wrong, he has to conform his will to her law. He can't do this. Sixteen years go by. All the lords are going to have a, get married, get married, get married, have an heir. Because without an heir, he can't do it. He's having to learn to give his will to a law that he doesn't make. So right at the center of that is the breaking of a law, an injustice, all the wrongs surrounding it, and then what I'm going to call 16 years of mercy. It corresponds to what Dante shows us in the Purgatorio. Leontes has a time to learn to correct his will, to make, to make his will better. It's a long wake, 16 years. So in a sense, it's the time, if we can put it in Dante's terms, it's a purgatorial time of learning to correct his will, to make his will good. And the really interesting thing is he can't decide, just like the souls in purgatory. It's not for him to say, I've done my... Because it's, it's still, so long as we keep doing things in our terms, we're going to be wrong. We think we've got all the answers, and we don't. It's not up to us. It's up to God. So he has to learn to wait on somebody else's will. And after six, so he can't say at 14 years, I'm done. I'm going to do what I want. The whole point is he has to learn to do the will of another being. Because so long as he keeps doing things according to his will, that's the Protestant world. You, you're the arbiter of everything. You're going to decide on everything. I mean, it's going back to your 
um, comment, Fred, about difference if you're Catholic living it. The Protestant begins as the arbiter. His faith makes him the arbiter of everything that goes on. He's going to decide. At the center of the Catholic faith is an, ob- an act of obedience to learn to make our wills one with another, because until we do, there's going to be something wrong with our wills. So to go back to Winter's Tale, um, he can't decide. It's only after 16 years, and it wasn't up to him, that Floridel, Perdita return, and finally Polixenes, and they're reconciled. And there's this extraordinary moment. It's like a, a moment of forgiveness. It's paradisal. When all the sins of the past are washed away, and there's this extraordinary joy. Um, Leontes is reunited with Hermione. Um, Perdita and Camilla are, are um, not Perdita, yeah, Perdita and, no, not Perdita, but um, Paulina and Camilla are going to get married. You know, Perdita and Florizel will get married. There's a celebration of marriage. But it's, it's the bringing together of a law and a mercy. Um, that makes that so extraordinary. Um, so to me, it's one of the most profound works dealing with justice and mercy that I'm aware of, and the hardships of it. I, I think what goes on in uh, Billy Budd, so many of the works show us that very often to do the right thing is one of the hardest things. It, it costs us our life. We have to learn to say no to ourselves for the sake of something greater than ourselves that we have to learn to give ourselves to without that we keep we're stuck in the same wrongs over and over and over and over again we're just stuck there so i'm it's just interesting fred that you would have chosen those three because i i mean there are three that i i mean i i would have easily i mean i i can go to others but I, those are three special plays for sure anybody else want to take up fred's comment or some of the things he was saying, or any any of any of the other, do any of you think of any other works that deal with this thing and this relationship between justice and mercy that's been particularly revealing? Bob, I have a, a comment, and it's on Billy Budd. Yeah, I think the conclusion that one comes to about um, whether or not the ship captain made the right decision is a function of assumptions that we have to make about relationships and power on that ship, as well as what, you know, what opportunities to meet out the justice are. And I think if one looks at it in a different way, you can come to a different conclusion than the captain doing the right thing. Specifically, because the captain had control of the ship, he had an opportunity to seek better counsel on board and also to wait a bit and have additional support from his command to take a look at. None of that need change the outcome. It merely would defer it or delay it a bit to seek better information so that the judgment on it could perhaps come out differently. Yeah. if the outcome is different, I don't know why that even matters then, but one of the interesting things about the story, at least as the narrator presents it, is if you look at the composition of the people and it's so clear that he's he's the captain. I mean, ultimately he's gotta make he's the one who's gonna make the decision. But if you look at the 
if the way it's set up, and and by the way, this is all narrated. I mean, th- we've got to deal with what's there. We can't we can't impose ideas of our own. We've got to work with what's there. Um, it, it, he chose the men on the committee. I mean, you can fault him for that. I I myself don't, but he chose men um, for a couple of reasons. One, he wanted somebody close to the shipmen, you know, whoever that sergeant of armor, who that guy was, and one of the um, lieutenants, one of the officers of the. So the men who served on the count the court um, jury, the committee. Um, represented the men in a sense. It's a representative body. It's not left up to the shipmen. We already know that men are in a state of mutiny or ready mutiny. I mean, because of what's happening, and we've seen there were already indications that there were things going on on ship. They were aware of mutinies. Um, by the way, the narrator presents it. Um, we, I, I think we all have a sense that. Anybody doing anything could have started a mutiny pretty easily on that ship long before Billy Budd came into it. What Claggard did with him, you know, what the what the two spies that Claggard sent on him, that that men could be manipulated, easily moved to do these things. That there was an indication that the men already res- resented being asked to do things. You know that that they they were. Um, believing that reforms needed to be made and they weren't treated justly and it was the same basis on which those two mutinies took place before. So there was a lot going on there um, but one of the interesting things about the way it's set up is that um, Veer, who's called Truth, is by far the most educated, the most perceptive, the wisest. He can see things that other people don't see. so it's it's um, you know I, I sometimes I think about a a leader you know and not all leaders are good if if you remember Plato you know that the likelihood of getting a philosophic king is next to nothing how how many leaders really have the wisdom or the virtue that we wish they would have they don't they just don't it's rare to get people who are philosophic kings and when we do get them they're often killed. Because people don't understand, they just they don't have the depth of understanding that those kind of people have. So, um, there, it, it, just the way that um, the narrator presents things makes it clear that um, Veer can see things that other people don't. Um, anybody else on? on any of these books, any other books that people call to mind before. I really want, I'm going to stop here in a minute because I want to get to these, I want to get to this one question. Um, I've got a couple of comments. Yeah, Mark, go ahead. Uh, uh, number one, even though Winter's Tale is an outstanding work, I still have a problem with the fact that the wife faked her death for like 16 years to get back at her husband. i got a big problem with that. Um, um, Somebody save far, me! <laughs> and as far as Fred's comment about Catholics possibly being better at the law, I don't... I'd have to think on that a little bit, but my initial reaction is a difficult one because we don't live in a theocracy, and when you have things based, now granted, our morals and our judgments are made, you know, whatever, good or bad, are generally based upon religion, um, however you grew up, with or without. 
But if you take a look historically at the times the church has tried to do things, you have, you know, even even in today's day with the idiotic Jesuits, our current Pope Martin and those guys trying to do stuff with the law from the church. You look at the Inquisition, that wonderful period in Catholic history. Sure, glasses. Um, that, that, what a show. Yeah. Um, I, I think that a true good practicing Catholic can make good decisions, but I don't think you necessarily have to be Catholic. If you look at philosophers, writers, poets, whatever, from any age, pre-Christian, non-Christian, Christian, the truth is the truth, right? Do unto other, you know, the whole the golden rule thing. It doesn't matter what culture you come from, the golden rule is the same. So I think, you know, if you, and that is, God is an embodiment of the truth, right? However people find it. And if you seek the truth and if you can mentally and emotionally get there in your own mind, and a lot of people can't, I don't think it has to necessarily be Catholic. And I think that having a religious thing over law could pose a lot of problems. It could be good, but it could also pose a lot of problems. Mark, I really appreciate your comments. My, my question to you is, and it is just that, just a question. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I've been on, I, I think being a Christian is extraordinarily important. The question I, I have is, is if you're a practicing Catholic, does that give you an advantage? Advantage for what, friend? As you're trying to make this, find this right composition between justice and mercy in any given situation. Clearly, I think being a Christian gives you an advantage. Question I have, having been on both sides of the fence, is do we collectively believe that being a practicing Catholic, and forget about the church. I don't I didn't want to talk about the church. You know, I'm just talking about the, the theology. It's the best way I can describe it, I guess. Do, do we believe that being a practicing Catholic with that with those with the sacraments and the and the theology that goes to that that is unique to being a Christian do we collectively feel like that makes it any easier for us to find that right composition Fred well, can I, I use can I, can I use a no mark get you, give me just a sec can I use another word if you don't mind instead sure. of advantage or easier well, I if I use balance you were going to No no I know I know I you I know you've been can I just can I just re, without taking away just add another phrase it, it is having what the church claims to be the wholeness of the faith the truth does that help a human does does it make it possible it, is it do humans have a help from the church that they wouldn't receive to grow into the wholeness of a human being that they wouldn't if they were in another denomination. I don't want to, I'm just trying to get around advantage or, so go ahead, Mark, go ahead and answer. I, yeah, and, uh, good question. I don't know of being a Catholic, because I've known lots of people, Catholic, non-Catholic, good and bad, right? You know, people who make good decisions who aren't Catholic. So I can't sit there and just do personal examples and say, well, if you're not a Catholic, you're a moron, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it makes it harder because, you know, ideally in a, in a country like America, because that's where we live, right, you separate 
you know, church and state and the laws are the laws and they're black and white. If you take God out of it, it's relatively easy because you just read the words and you apply that to whatever the situation is, right? Mercy comes into play, number one, when someone doesn't deserve it. That's, that's the definition mm. for mercy, right? If somebody deserves it, then it's not mercy, right? Um, they have to be guilty. They have to be non-deserving. And then there is a gift from the heart, and it comes from the heart. And the biggest problem is when you take the state or the government or country or whatever you want to call it, it's not a personal thing anymore because it represents everyone, not an individual. You can give mercy from your heart, and that is an act um, from God, in my opinion. Right, it's a personal gift, but as a state or as a country, can you really do that? And I don't think that's possible, because you don't represent just Catholics. Yeah, you represent morons too. I mean, I mean it's <laughs> you know. Um, so, so as a, I think it's a question as a state. I don't know. I don't but think it's a very I, good question. Very good question. Yeah, I think I think you're. I mean, thanks, Mark. I hope I'm not. I think you're avoiding. You're getting around the question that Fred's asking. If I'm understanding, and Fred, correct me. Because I thought you were asking, is ob objectively considered, is there an objective reality of truth? In, by the way, I don't want to avoid using the church. I'm not going to avoid it here. Because in a Catholic understanding, and, and by the way, there are idiots in all denominations, so you can't judge the denomination by the people that represent it. The, the question that I thought Fred was asking is, is there an objective reality to the Catholic Church and I'm and I'm I'm not going to avoid the word church because in our understanding the church is Christ. When somebody walks out of a church because they don't like the priest, that goes back to a donist heresy. Yeah, you don't do that. Um, the church is Christ. So when people make that distinction, they're already showing that there's something about the faith they don't understand. I thought Fred's question was, if you look at the church objectively in its wholeness. As it, as it embodies Christ, because we've seen all sorts of heresies tear at the church and try to make it something it's not. You've got heresies today. You've got schisms today. You're at the Orthodox world on one side. You've got the Protestant world on the other. I thought the question he was asking is, if you take the church as the embodiment, the wholeness of Christ, I'm going to, sorry, Fred, my, will, it, will it help somebody become, fulfill his nature as a human being and obviously that's an abstraction because it'll be different with lots of people but theoretically speaking does the wholeness of that will it be more helpful to a person to realize his human nature than if a person grew up under a, a, a schismatic or an incomplete church because otherwise in my mind thinking logically or or reasonably there's no reason for joining the church, and you can join any church. The question is, it, does, does the church represent the fullness of Christ? Because if it does, it will, it's, it, because it does, it's going to help any individual who lives it enter in more fully into that life than somebody who doesn't. And that would be true of any, any denomination. The question is, do other denominations keep a person from going into that fullness because they're lacking something? Fred, if I'm not getting that right, correct me, because I, I, I thought Mark was, in some ways, not answering your question. Um. Well, I, I think you're both right. I think, I think Mark was trying to address the question. I think the question is just is a difficult one. 
and 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 ultimately the question is does does being a a practicing Catholic give us a better ability to to to, to try to find that that right mix of of, right. of mercy and, and justice uh, are not because if it doesn't then you know why are we here why are we know. here right hey can I make a distinction y'all um, no 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 <laughs> no alright fine um, the, I I could not answer Fred's question but I could definitely say with a definite yes that having the Holy Spirit makes one more able to um, function in the, you know, walk in that tightrope of justice and mercy. Um, that's, that's the only thing I've been able to say a definite yes to, is because Christ gave us the Holy Spirit. Which means, he, um, I mean, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. He's carrying the Father and the Christ in him. So, Whatever he gives us is the Father in Christ. I mean, the Trinity can't be, you know, he's a gift. Um, but what he offered, that, and that's why he's the, you know, why Christ called on him to come after him. He's, so he's bringing Christ to us. He's making it possible for us to live Christ by anything he does with, and the Father. Um, one, of the great, one of the great regrets for me of our modern world is that we have, we have ceased to think about the Trinity as a Trinity um, and don't hold them together you know, and in however we look at the different persons the, the Holy Spirit is different from the Father and Christ but, or sorry the Son and Christ but he's the Spirit of Christ he's bringing Christ to us that was his, that's what Christ asked him to do um, is the paraclete to, to carry on his work after he left so um, he, but he's a, he, his name is Gift he's the love between the Father and Son that's, or at least that's the Catholic belief of him, that that's what he's bringing to us. So, um, If there are no other works to call in here, I want to get... How, how about if I cut it here? Can I, unless anybody's got a, real, a really strong feeling about something, I, I'd like to get to the other questions. Because we're going to take this up with Lewis and these other things that we're, we're going to look at. Dr. We, Bob, I would have to have all these works... And my notes from them and my highlights of the quotes up on a wall somewhere, like wallpaper, if I were going to access them like you do. <coughs> I know. We've, well, as we've done a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, that's why, I don't know, you guys, I don't know how seriously you take what I've said. I actually live in amazement of what you guys have done when I think about those of you who have been, you know, four or five years, my God, that you guys have all those works behind you is, who does this? It's worth, it's worth a degree, right? Can we get an honorary <laughs> degree? I'll, I'll give you one, but it's not going to count in the world, so. Here, let's go. I'm going to go to these two questions, uh, and let's get your thoughts on these in the short time that we have left. One of the one of the questions that we asked, Doc, I, you help me out here. What? One of the questions that we asked 
had to do with why the gods do what they do. Um, I want to. This is the second one. I, I'm going to just mention it and go on to the other one. I want to focus on that, but we can, if we have time, I, I'm not sure that we will. Why do the gods wait? You know, at the beginning of the Iliad, Athena comes down when Achilles pulls his sword and says, wait, wait, um, we will restore your honor later. He withdraws, wait, by, by the way, there's a Captain Veer response. He has to pull out. He pulls out. People die. Um, there are lots of moderns who say he shouldn't have pulled out. I mean, I think the answer to that is if he didn't pull out, that war would go on for another nine and a half years. He, pull, he pulls out of that order. There's something wrong with it. Um, and you know that he goes back in when Patroclus dies. And the amazing thing about the end in the Iliad is that psychomachia. When he, when he admits his fault, when he, when he says, my fault, and he accepts his death, the gods return to the battle, which is an image of a, of a spiritual reorientation in Achilles' soul. He's changed. He's accepted his death. He's accepted his fault. When he goes back, he's got new armor. Remember, he went in under, originally he went in under his mother's armor, Thetis's armor, which, which was given to her because of a dishonor. So when he goes back into the war, the honor is for him. He's, he's taken responsibility for himself, his own failures. He accepts his death. He has nothing to be afraid of. He goes back into the war. Nobody can touch him. Almost nobody can touch him. So when the psychomachia happens, all the gods go to war and the world shakes, I think it's Homer's way of saying any time an individual, you can call it a conversion moment, there's like a reorienting, your, your whole spiritual stance, your way of looking at the world, the way you feel towards it, the way you think about it, the way you understand things, changes radically. You don't see the world the same anymore. You don't see yourself anymore the same way. Why doesn't she come in at the beginning? When the, um, Telemachus and Athena go to Nestor's place, and, and Telemach or Telemachus is describing the chaos back in Ithaca at home, Nestor says, oh, if only Athena were with you now the way she was with Odysseus, your father. The great irony is Athena's right next to him. Nestor doesn't see her. Telemachus doesn't see her. Why does it? And, and Telemachus says the same thing. Oh, I only wish it were so. Why doesn't Athena jump out and say, idiots, I'm here. It took 16 years of a penance for the action with the Leontes to complete itself. Paulina couldn't determine it because, here's the, God, this is stunning. That's why the Winter Tales is so extraordinary to me. Paulina says, and I couldn't agree with you more, the, the women, I mean, tri traditionally, the women in Shakespeare have got so much more sense than the men. Paulina brings the babe out. Leontes says, get out, get out of here. Kill that thing, that witch. Um, Antigonus, the man, goes away. and He's going to be killed as a matter of justice. He, he's killed. Sixteen years have to pass. Why? Because Paul, God, here it is. Paulina has to read the oracle. The oracle says he's a tyrant. He will not have an heir until that which is lost is found. Perdita means that found. It's only when she returns. Paulina couldn't dictate when it would happen, neither could Hermione. They were all waiting on the gods. Nobody could say, I mean it goes to Mark's point, 
when you're, um, you think you know everything, you make, make all these decisions, except Paulina made a decision. So did her Martin. By the way, Mark, she's not getting back on her cut. Oh, God. She's not getting back at her husband. God, Mark. <laughs> she is okay. not getting back. You Wait. disappear for 16 years, and what do you think your wife's going to say? And you just show up one day. Here's, here's, if you look at the play, God, if you, remember, Paulina's actions are based on the oracle, on the gods. It's a matter of reading. The oracle says, until that which is lost is found. Paulina can't determine that, neither can her. Both of those women are acting on faith. It's not for them to decide. Wait, Mark, Mark. So it's only, it's 16 years, and they can't decide. What Shakespeare's showing us is none of them can do this on their own. Something larger is going on over which they don't have control. So, so once again, I'm asking the question: Why, do, why the gods delay? So I'm just I'm giving other examples. Um, Athena with Achilles, Athena with Telemachus, um, the gods in Winter's Tale, um, Beckett, when he said, "This is the day. This is the day." He had to wrestle whether or not it was up to him, because he knew the dangers if he did it for himself. Um, 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 take Mink Snopes. Mink was in jail doing everything he could to get out. Flem is doing everything he had to keep him in. During that 30-year period, Mink undergoes a conversion. At the beginning of the Snopes trilogy, Mink says, It's. He calls the gods It's. They're this thing. He undergoes this conversion after 30 years, and he says, I have to learn to wait. He reached a point where he realized it was not up to him. You're answering your own question. It's not up to him. So he gets the news that the guy who was going to kill him died, and he gets the news that Linda did something to get this early release. When he goes to Goody Gay's, Hayes community, he, the money is stolen from him. And the community has to make up. All these things are happening outside of his will. So when you put a lot of things like that together, when you put so many of the works together on this matter of time, chronological time, it's like the edge of the circle, not the still point. Um, why do the gods wait? What's going on with this theme that we're seeing of the, the what seems to be a delay, why don't the gods come in? We can take a minute with that if anybody wants to jump in. Um, Is it because they're waiting for the transformation of the person? Well, explain it, Kathy. Can you? Can you? Oh, what? Um, well, I mean, all his. Um, releasing his will. I mean, he's doing everything for himself. Um, you know, the death of the child, the, you know, it's, it's, he's uh, all wrapped up in his own, own self. And the period of time, the 16 years, there's obviously a learning period uh, where he learns that it's, it's not about him, it's about something greater than himself. And at the point that he realizes that is the point where she can come back. Yeah. Not at that point. It's, and I wonder if you can't say 
the it's not that the gods come in when they've learned how to put this it's it's they it's their coming in as an indication that the soul has reached a point of saying your will not mine sue can i call you in, i mean can you bring psyche or i mean uh, um, oriole and psyche in on this that the the time that it passed um, and what it is that triggers all the events that leads to um, Oriole's revelation because there's another long period in which certain things happen it's been a long time since we've done that and there's a number you know all the the when she when she talks to when she talks when she hears from the priest on that visit and she gets a retelling of the story that doesn't fit the way she wants the vision of her father at the mirror the you know all the visions of the 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 collecting of the seeds and that there are all these things happening um, um, can 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 you can you take what we're talking about why the gods seem to do what they do with humans in this time of delay or waiting or something that happens and apply it to till we have faces um, I'm not sure if that was very clear but My thinking along these lines is not going to be productive, I think. I mean, I can put, I, I can put the waiting in the same light. We have to wait until we get ourselves listening to God, listening to what the Holy Spirit is telling us to do. You're not going to like my interpretation because you're starting out with the assumption, the statement, that somehow being a Catholic, practicing Catholic, and I'm not sure what that is, a good practicing Catholic, gives you a special insight as to that. And I don't carry that same belief, but I think we all struggle, and I, I believe Christ and the Holy Spirit and God all come together to try to help us grow and gain insight. But then I'm the Protestant in this group, so I think listening to God is very hard. And we have strong wills, and God has given us those wills. And until we learn to tame those to his his will but do it freely which is where I'm going to get in trouble because <laughs> you don't like this part no stop I, saying that that's, I'm a Protestant so <laughs> I, I'm trying to stay out of this as much as I can I think we all struggle with this I think we have free will and this is why I've said this to you privately or maybe even in class at one point I am not comfortable with the Catholic order of authority. <laughs> I think God is the authority. God through Christ with the Holy Spirit is my authority. Good. Not. Listen, I don't dislike any of the things you said, so I wish you'd stop using that because you've done that several nights. I did not dislike anything you said. I wanted to separate this from um, what Fred said earlier in Mark. 
because the focus for me or the concern for me wasn't Catholic or Protestant or if that was a comment that Fred made that I, I, I mean, I thought it was a good one and Mark no, went, wait, 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 I mean, I'm waiting I'm, for a definition of what that means. Yeah, let me, if, practicing Catholic. I don't, I don't understand what that entails that isn't a good practicing Christian. Yeah, I know right now, if I can, I'd like to step aside because that's a long answer. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a much longer it's yeah, a much longer discussion. I know. Here, not now necessarily. Yeah, let That's let me just because I, I that was and I thought it was an important question that Fred answered and and, and Mark was answered. But I'm going to walk away for a minute. Okay, but here, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, because my question here was not about a practicing Catholic or differences between our faith. My question here was is. And I was turning to you because I know you love that work. Uh, Mark, would you stop? God bless. Would you stop? Mark, you're not helping right now. Would you stop, please? God. No, Mark, cut here. Sue, I was turning to you not to, not to take up these other because that was not my concern. The question that I was putting to you because I know you love Till Til We Have Faces. So do I. I love that book. My question to you had nothing to do with differences in faith. I'd rather not go there. My question for you was not about that. It was because we were talking about Winter's Tale, not because of any light it sheds on Catholic or Protestant. It's I'm looking at that play in terms of this question of justice, mercy, and I'm trying to get to something that Fred was asking and indirectly trying to answer Mark's comment about Hermione. There's an extraordinary action going on in that play. Extraordinary. It, it, to me, it's one of the most powerful pieces of literature in the world. My question to you was, because I know you love um, to have faces, I was trying to recall, in, in light of one of the questions we were asking on this sheet, why the gods wait? What's what's going on? Okay, with I, and I guess my, my way of answering that is this. Related God to that specific work. Yes, right. God has given us a free will to see things in our, we have the ability to see things in our own way, but we have to, we have to use that will eventually to discern God's way. We have to see ourselves as we are and when we can, and we know that we are loved as we are because we are made by God. And that's what that's what, now I can't even think of her name. Oriole. Who was the other? Oriole Psyche. Oh, Psyche, okay. Oriole had to do until, until she could see her the goodness in herself as reflected of God, reflective of God's goodness. She couldn't come to peace, to come to understanding, come to truth. And that's why I love that so much, because God gives us that ability to look at ourselves. But if we're not doing it through the Holy Spirit, if we're not doing it correctly, he gives us space and time for us to be able to do that. And and that's what I see in all of these works, is people who are usual, normal, selfish, self-centered, powerful, and egotistical, all have to come to some kind of understanding 
that yes, they have that power, but it comes from God. And it needs to be used rightly. That's the best I can do. Yeah, well, I'm going to, if I can, if I can stay with you for a second, um, I'd like to ask something for a second of you. Um, what I'm asking is not for you to draw on a work to make general conclusions about matters of faith. I'm asking you for a minute not to do that. Um, what I'm asking you to do, because I, because I know you know the work well, um, is to, to keep your focus, to not use the work to make conclusions about religion or the spirit or God or to to look back at the work to see what the work is saying in terms of its own action what happens to Oriol wait let me try to because I just think I just think this is terribly hard so it's not easy when you look keep ourselves me you out of it or generalizations about a religion I'm asking us to look at the concrete specifics of a certain work its action to understand this question of why the gods do what they do Oriol starts that, the work starts as a protest against the gods. It begins, this is, you know, she's writing a narrative, she's going to defend herself. So it starts, she's writing, and it, it starts, if you remember, later in the world when she starts getting all this stuff happening, she talks to the priest when she goes to make that visit, and he tells her the story, and she thinks he's got it all wrong. And then a series of things happen. I'm not asking about conclusions, generalizations, about our faith from that. I'm asking everybody to stay in the work, to look at the work, to answer this question. The, the, because Fred's question was, there are these things that tie these works together. And we're, I, I, I'm, right now I'm not interested in making judgments about Catholics or Protestants. It was, to me, it was a tangential thing. I'm asking this question. A lot of these works show the gods waiting. We saw it in the Iliad, we saw it in the Odyssey, we saw it in murder, we saw the minks, I mean I've tried to name a number of, of, I mean, go through a number of them just briefly with it come to my mind, I'm sure some of you can add more, and I was turning to you because I knew you love that work because a long time takes place and something happens involving the gods and my question is why do they, do? what goes on? To do that we have to look at the book and say this is what happens, this is what happens, and that's why. The question is why do the gods do what they do? In every one of the works that I've mentioned, they keep delaying. 16 years for Leontes. You know, Athena doesn't jump in in the Iliad. She doesn't jump in in a... She, um, the gods aren't there with Mink. In a lot of these works, we're watching people do things. I'm trying to get to the general question that Fred was asking. I don't want religions, denominations. I'm asking us to look at the works to see if there's something we can learn about why in so many of these works... The gods delay, and they do it in uh, in two we have faces. So I'm asking, put your mind there. Get off the religious question for a minute. What do we learn if we look at that work? I wasn't answering the religious the religious question. Maybe I said something that made you think that. Uh, my answer is because man, woman, person has to come to that realization, and it takes people time to do that. Because our egos and our wills get in the way. And no, so, so the gods put things in motion, but then we do have a choice as to whether or not to react. And it is not until we can do that, which takes a while, longer for some and less for others probably, that things can proceed. 
So what I'm asking is, yeah, what I think what I'm asking for you, if you could help us all, because I know you know the work well, and I'm trusting you because your memory is a good one. Take us back over the events, concretely. I, I, I don't want to get out of the work. And what I'm asking is, go back to look at the work concretely, and what, what can we learn if we look at the sequence of events to see what happens there? To do that, we've got to look at actually the concrete events, not generalizations of our own. What happened in that work to help Oriol turn? Doc, can you help? Well, I mean, aside from the whole psyche Cupid thing that takes place at the beginning, um, Oriole works hard as a queen. Um, she, what was his name, Bardia? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, can you all hear, Doc? Can you? Yeah. Um, so she gets very attached to Bardia and sort of eats him alive is the wrong way of putting it. But, but she, that's what her wife, his wife says. And then she... Meaning what? Can you flesh that out before we... She just takes all of his time and all... I mean, she just uses him for her and her... Right. And I don't think she means... It's not cannibalistic. She doesn't mean it that way. She right. just uses him all right. the time. Um, but then she meets with his wife and his wife has a very different view, which is new to her. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't remember whether when she meets that priest in the forest, whether that's before or after she meets Bardia's wife. Um, I think it's later, but I may be wrong. It's one of the reasons I'm turning everybody here. Um, so there are just little, I mean, she spends her whole life, basically, trying to be a good queen. Um, and there are these little things that come up. That Can you name them, Doc? I mean, Bardia won, but all the the visions, the writing, the when when they when. Um, well, he goes to the to the place where the priestesses are and the right ceremony. And right. Then, then she goes and has to relive events in her life and look at them. Um, it, she's going to try to find psyche. I can't remember exactly where she ended up, where they're written on the wall, and she has to relive those things. And she has to look at them and see, can begin to see them differently. And then she has to, the person she loves most, rather than herself, is Psyche. And Psyche is the one that's sent on these quests and Ariel tries to dissuade her from doing things. She she sees the the castle and then doesn't. And it, it it's just well I don't know. My mind tends to generalize, Bob. It once it figures out what the point is, then it doesn't necessarily go back. And I don't have it memorized. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I just a, any any anything more, Doctor. You well, then there then there are the the things that Psyche is doing. Right. That are a reflection of what Oriole didn't do. And so Psyche is picking up Oriole's burden. Or that right. she was doing. I mean, hold on, just for a second. Well, no. Here, because one of the things to throw in here, Sue, just as, I mean, to get back to the book, she starts writing 
And in the act of writing, I mean, she describes it in terms of sorting things out. And that corresponds to one of the burdens, one of the ordeals that Psyche had to go through with the sorting of the... That a lot is going on. I mean, if, if this is allegorical, that, that these two actions are going on, what happens with Psyche, we're to understand, is something that's actually going on inside of Oriole's soul. So to go to this question that I'm asking, that I think goes to Fred is, or one of the questions we're asking, what's happening over time? Why does it take time? Anyway, what you, you were gonna? So what else? What were the? Vi- Nothing. I was thinking about the the sorting. Um, I don't remember. And then she has to go to the land of the dead, but that's the last one. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't. It was the it was the fleece. Was there something about? Right. What, yes, there was right. a fleece. Now relate this to time. What's, why do the, why, in, the question we're trying, we're struggling with is, is, why don't the gods come in right away and say, knock, to Leontes, um, knock it off. Why, why, why do the gods do what they're doing with us? Um, often when what we're doing is not good. And, 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 and if you could just keep it in psyche in there. What, what's going on with that time? What does it show the gods are doing with her or Psyche's doing with her just in terms of the divine helping her? I think that Sue's answer is, would be my answer, that the gods are giving her, it's a mercy, the gods are giving her time and it's like when I think the Holy Spirit is prompting me um, he's not knocking on my forehead and saying, dummy, this is what you should be doing. He's, he's giving me thoughts or images or experiences that lead me to reflect on what's going on and realize that I need to make a turn. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think, what Susan said earlier is true, that they're, they're allowing their large vision of the gods uh, yeah mm-hmm. of oriole and psych oriole primarily um and allowing her to stumble along in her own way and find it if they clapped their hands and made big thunder it would scare her the way cuba did but i don't know that it would change her yeah remember to include in this when you think about all the things that um, that were important for Ariel's, I mean, Oriole's turn. How important that scene was in which her father takes her to the mirror and digs down. Here. The digging, 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 digging beneath all these layers, because it's like layers of denial, where the father gets very, very harsh with her. Um, how essential that is. I mean, everything else goes, because it's all painful. I mean, there's a, there's a spiritual conversion going on in her that's taking time. Um, and a lot's going on in it um, that takes all sorts of different forms. Um, so it's just, I mean, in terms of the question that we're asking, we're, we're watching the divine order um, work with human beings. If I can make a generalization now, Sue, it's not that I, you, don't, you know me well, it's not that I don't like generalizations, I just wanted to get into the concretes of a work. That what one of the things that seems to me we see in all these works is what the gods do protects our free will. They have to work with our free will and the stupid things we do, and very often the cost of it. 
Patroclus is going to die. People are going to suffer. You know, um, bad things happen. And the gods have to, I mean, this is Boethius again. Um, the gods doing everything you can to protect our free will, even, even when we do stupid things. But I think you can say with Boethius, of all the works we've read, that the, the God is good. He's, he's always trying to work with what human beings, sometimes in painful ways. You know, um, it, it doesn't mean we're always going to be spared to death. Um, I, can I just add one thing? And, yeah. and maybe this is way too offbeat, but my feeling is that that is what our life on earth is about, is that we are given this time to figure it out. Now, maybe you call it purgatory. We've talked about that once before. But, you know, in a sense, this is our time to get things as right as we can. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd so agree. I look at all yeah. of these works as being struggles of human beings to, to get as aligned with where we need to be as we can. Yeah. I would, I would just would add, I mean, I, I completely agree. I would just add, it's not just getting things right, because that, that to me suggests our mind, but getting right in the sense in which we have to learn to get our wills to love to be good, to, to, to think the truth, that the truth is one, so that our mind, to, our, the two great gifts to us, our intellects and our wills, what we see with our heads, what we do with our wills, become one in wholeness, that is, we become the creatures that God made us to be. We become good. And, and what we love with our hearts. Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I mean, that's our wills, to love fully, to live in the truth, that those things become one in us, not at odds or divided. So that in every one of these works, we're watching conversions that people become, Leontes, or Oriol, Mink, um, they're becoming more fully human and in accord with the truth and after Christianity with love. That um, we become whole, that our minds and wills come together. Um, we're watching artists struggle with that thing a lot. Um, we didn't get to this thing. I want to get to it. Can we Can we plan to start with these readings? I'll send you copies of them, the Lewis article and um, um, Abolition of Man. But before we do them, and we may have to take up a whole class, I don't know, the way these classes are going. <laughs> I'd like to take up this question the apophatic and the importance of reflection, particularly self-reflection, it's, it's touching on what we're talking about you know, this hour. That long question that I had um, that made my paper longer. <laughs> um, the apophatic and the importance of reflection, particularly self-reflection in our own growth. You know, um, what, this is going to get to literature, but it's going to get to us. I've been saying this all along. In literature, we return to the world. We enter back into it. We're not in abstractions. We're not in generalizations. We're not in philosophy. We're in a concrete world. We have to resort to abstractions to talk about it. But in literature, we, we re-enter the world. But So one of the things that happens is that we identify with a world. We're, we're one with Achilles or Oriol or Helena. Or, you know, let it be whoever it is. Um... um um, Beckett, uh, it, um, all of them, 
we become one with a person, Hermione's Perdita, all of them, Billy, one we're in the book. We undergo an action. We feel what they feel. We learn to see things. So what's happening is that we're learning to enter back into the world and participate in the world at the same time that we stand outside of it. So a habit of detachment is being formed while we get involved in something. Both. How important is that for us? I, this sort of goes to a question, what is literature giving us? But it, it touches on some Fred's question about justice and mercy, the question about what the gods are doing. Um, how important is it to read literature? Um, you know, I, Suzanne and I said, Suzanne, I've been watching the fellowship and we're just loving it. We're absolutely involved in that. So we're involved in an action, completely one with it, and yet outside of it. Why is that important? What does it do for us? Or let me put it differently. What would happen if we didn't have that? Why, why, the, why have all of you guys been hanging around for four or five years? Why? I don't believe this is just entertainment. You can watch movies that are better than this. This whole ex experience we share of entering into something and detaching it, reflecting on it at the same time. Why is that important for us as Christians, whatever our denomination? Why is that important? I don't want to take it up now, but I want to start our next class with that, and we'll, we'll pick up C.S. Lewis as soon as we give this question some time, okay? So next week, let's take up, if, you, if all of you could read it, it's on that, you know, that sheet that I gave you, it's on page four on, on this, this whole thing of reflection. Read that question, Will. It's, I, it's, it's a little bit long, but be patient. Um, read that question, and let's take it up. So I didn't hear. Post. When did you post that, Bob? I don't remember, Sue. You all have it. I, it's, it's I can't do anything but read it online, and it's been a problem for me. Because I do things better if I can print them off and read them and, you know, kind right. of on my own. In, it's in the folder, so you should be able to. It's a work full. It's a word folder. It's a word text. But okay, no, I can read it. I just can't print it right now because of my printer and my network, and I've got a technical problem at home that I'm trying to work out. But what folder is it in? It's in the one on. Um, I think it's the, Discussions. Uh, the Discussions. natural law or mercy or one of those. It's the one, it's the overview discussion. It's the list of all the discussion questions. Okay, all right, thank you. Um, I'd say I'd send it by email, but that means you still have to print it. Either way, you're, you know, you have a text that you can print off. It's there in the, it's, in, it's there online. Okay, um, all of you be safe. All of you be safe. Um, we'll pick up here one more, sorry, one more week, I guess. But we'll start C.S. Lewis, the mercy justice issue, and um, stay with us. And then we'll go to <laughs> what may be safer ground in the literature that we're reading. <laughs> you guys have a good week, okay? Um, bless you all. Um, could you all keep each other in prayers, keep e um, praying for each other? You guys have a good week. See you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. I'm sorry we don't get these things going in time. Okay.
started learning about it.